Good morning, Harvest Muskoka, Harvest Perry Sound. Just want to welcome you this morning. I had the opportunity uh, this, this week and next week, you're stuck with me. Uh, Pastor Kai is suffering in Florida, brutal. Um, no, good for him. Um, much needed rest and, and break with his family. Um, and so really, uh, just the next two weeks, I want to get into suffering. Um, I want to talk about the implications of suffering specifically in regards to sanctification. And so I'm not going to throw a bunch of fancy words around. This, these are words that we'll find in Scripture. But I, but I do want us to understand what the implications of those words for us, uh, if we're not in Christ, and, and if we are in Christ, still has some implications for everyone in the room, wherever you fall on either side of that. And so if you could turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you, have a, if you do not have a Bible, just raise your hand. One of our ushers will pass one out to you. So suffering is a really broad term, um, but I think in its broadness, it's usually minimized to um, several key areas. I think when you, when you hear or use the word suffering in general, you, you, you use it regarding someone who's um, dealing with some type of illness or they're go going through some type of long, prolonged season of difficulty. Usually it's around health or, or death or some type of significant loss. But what you're going to see in Scripture is that suffering encompasses far more. Um, and the implications of suffering are, are far-reaching. And the way that our heart typically deals with suffering is not very good. Um, and God's purposes in suffering are beautiful and right if and as we, as a people of God, or those who are pursuing Christ, will come under what God's hope and design for suffering is in our hearts. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to be jumping around um, the Bible quite a bit to show us different things. I don't want to jump around too much. So some things I might just read for us or speak to you to go get in on your own time this, later this week. Um, but there are some key texts that I want to get into together. But before we dive into God's Word, let me pray for us once again. So Father, we, we come to you right now. And we, we bring our hearts before you, we bring our minds before you, we bring our wills, we bring our emotions before you, Father. And we ask that you would read us through your word, that your spirit would illumine the things in the depths of who we are, and that we would place ourselves under your authority, that all of our presuppositions, all of the things that we bring into this place right here, right now, that you would help us to come under your authority, under your word, under your truth, that you would read us there, that you would minister to us there. So Father, we, we're a needy people. Even on our best day, if we're gonna be honest, we're far more vulnerable than we realize. So we're a needy people and we come to you in that neediness and we ask, Father, it's the confession of our heart that you would meet with us that you would minister to us deeply and that you would have your way in our lives. So Holy Spirit, move now in power and open our hearts to you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, I hope I don't keep switching sides. Hopefully that'll be the last time. But uh, Deuteronomy chapter eight, um, suffering in general comes from, I would say three, three big categories. And it's usually, I think, a combination of these three, although you might identify more with one or the other. 
Suffering comes from living in a fallen world. Romans 8 and Ephesians 6 talk about this. And in a fallen world, um, we're promised a couple things. Because sin enters the world in Genesis 3. Now, now keep in mind, you got Genesis 1 and 2 before Genesis 3. And in Genesis 1 and 2, there is no sin. That God had created everything in just this, this perfect peace. And then mankind, Adam and Eve, dwelled in the presence of the Lord, unhindered, uh, with no fear, with no sin, with no lacking, there was perfection there. And then Genesis 3 happens, and sin profoundly fractures everything. And, and, and from, from, from the, the greatest behavioral level where you could see an action in somebody and say, oh, that's a murderer. He's a murderer. She's a murderer. That is sinful to the very cellular DNA. Everything was fractured immensely, more than we could comprehend. So we all suffer from the effects of a fallen world that creation was subjected to futility. You know what that means? That means creation groans. That, that if you see something that's broken, creation would recognize that it's, that it's broken more than you and I would recognize it. That when you see something that, that at the pinnacle, that it, then it quite doesn't measure up to what, what you think it should measure up to be. That creation groans, it longs for something that we have not experienced. That would be a world without sin. And that we all suffer from the effects of the demonic. That Satan... Um, the Bible describes Satan as, as one who, who roams around seeking to devour, like a lion. That, and, and Pastor Kai has been talking about this the last several weeks in talking about the armor of God, that, that in no way is Satan um, chummy with you. And in no way does Satan want to go out and grab a bite with you and just hang because you and him could be buddies. He wants to murder you and destroy your soul. Like he is not for you. He is not for your good, that all his schemes are set against you to end you and that we are suffering as a result of the demonic, that we are suffering from the effects of our own sin and rebellion. Anybody say amen to that one? <laughs> that we do foolish things, that we rebel against a holy God and the react the, the, the reality of that is there's consequences to those sins. And that we're suffering from the result of the sins of others. Romans 5 talks about this, that sin and death in Adam's sin is bestowed on us all. You, you've been hurt by somebody else's sin, have you not? That somebody has said or done something to you that so hurts you and so wounded you, it sets you back for what seemed like decades that it so scarred you and so afflicted you that it affects even five out of the seven mornings you wake up a week, that the sins of others create detrimental effects to our heart. So if suffering is all around us, if suffering is inedible, inevitable and that it's not as broad as we might think, even though it is broad and that it is all-encompassing, that the very reality is that we have gathered into this room today and all of us are setting under the effects of suffering. All of us are dealing with the effects of suffering. For some of you, that suffering is very close. You're in the middle of it right now. For some of you, it happened a long time ago, but it's still very close to your heart. And, and then my, my fear for some of us is that we're sitting in the midst of it and we've so conditioned our heart to turn off 
when we feel the pain of agony come on, that we've numbed ourselves to the reality that we're on fire, that we're getting engulfed by flames. And so what does God use suffering for? How does God walk us through all of these trials, these difficulties, these sufferings that come against us? Let's read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in, possess the land that the Lord swore to give your father. So let me give a bit of context to what's going on here. So if, if you remember back in Exodus, um, God raises up Moses, an unassuming dude who definitely wouldn't feel the position to lead um, God's people. Like on, on paper, his resume is awful. It's not, it's not the guy you're going to look for to run your company. Hey, I'm transitioning out towards retirement. I'm going to raise this guy up to take the company to the next level. No, this is not the guy that you would choose for that. God raises up Moses. The scriptures say he can't speak well, and he knows it, that he's not articulate. And God says, I know I made you that way, <laughs> which I'm like, okay, God makes some dummies. Um, he, I, I know I made you that way. And he gives Moses some supernatural signs to, to show the Pharaoh that I'm leading my people out of slavery. I'm leading them out of Egypt. And so, so God, sh God shows Moses, Moses and Aaron, and they go before the elders, the people, to show them what God's doing. The elders, God's people, they're overwhelmed because they've been pleading and begging the Lord, please save us, please free us. And then they see that God's raised up Moses and they're overwhelmed with joy. They're overwhelmed. And then God does all of these amazing things to lead them through and out of slavery and out of Egypt. And now they're about to enter the promised land. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years and God's giving them these reminders of here's what I was doing and here's what I'm going to continue to do. That's right where we are. So verse two, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So here's, here's what's great about this text. God knew what was in their heart. God knew that they were a stiff-necked people. He knew that they were rebellious. I can't tell you how many times in the wilderness the people are calling for Moses' head. And Moses is just simply doing what God's called him to do. And yet in their grumbling, in their complaining, keep in mind, God fed them supernaturally every day. I don't know about you, but God's never supernaturally fed me. I go to the cupboard, I go to the refrigerator, I grab some breakfast and we go on our way. Recognizing that's from the Lord, but I don't recognize it. I just eat it and go. They were fed supernaturally every day. At night, he led them with a pillar of fire. I don't even know what that looks like. Just some torch floating, some, some light that's floating and they're following it. They see God show up for them time and time again. God knew that their hearts would wander. God knew that their hearts would be set towards other gods. God knew that they would grumble and complain and desire to go back into Egypt because at times it was easier there, but it really wasn't easier. 
Just in a moment of difficulty, in a moment of suffering, their heart would quickly look to the left and to the right. Where do we go? God has abandoned us. Where do we go? We don't want to feel this pain anymore. God knew their heart. He took them into the wilderness, into that place of suffering so that they could see their hearts the way that he did. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Have you ever been bold enough to confess that? Huh? Have you ever stopped and paused and considered how quickly we leave the God who's pursued us, who's been faithful, and how quickly we dart to the left or to the right, not realizing that our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God who loves us, the God we love. So why does God expose our hearts? In exposing our hearts, what is he really trying to make us aware of? What is he trying to get us to see? Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This idea of, of living hope, it's, it's confident in what's to come and strengthened progressively. Okay, so this, this living hope, it's, it's aware that 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 today's not the goal, that this life is not the goal, that what's been secured for me through Christ, that's, it can't be touched by rust, it can't be touched by the moth, like it, it's, it's unfadable, it can't be destroyed. But progressively, the Lord's growing my hope in that. That's what he's talking about here. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, it's undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, in what? In this, this living hope, this future glory, what's been secured for us. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Various trials, lots of debate about what the trials are. But the reason Peter keeps it vague is because he doesn't want us to have the ability to say, this is what this type of suffering is supposed to, to bring. This is what this type of trial is supposed to bring about. This is what this type of difficulties bring about. He purposely keeps it vague and ambiguous to talk about what God does in the midst of trials in and in suffering. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So these various trials that come our way. So we talked about in the beginning, right, that suffering, it's a, it's a, it's a big category that's often understood very narrowly. But the reality is that we're all setting under some kind of suffering, whether we're aware of it or not. 
And what, what Peter's saying here in 1 Peter um, chapter 1 is that God uses a variety of suffering. God uses a variety of trials to, 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 to purge us, to, um, to purify us. So this is a collision of Romans 8, 28, and Malachi 3. So let me, let me just highlight what those, what those verses, in fact, write them down. Romans 8, 28, you need to read that this week at some point. Read through 30, 28 through 30. Really, all of chapter 8 is a phenomenal read, especially in the flow. Then Malachi 3. Malachi 3 is going to talk about the refiner's fire. If you've been in church any amount of time, if you've been in Sunday school growing up, you've heard about the refiner's fire. And that God, God uses the picture of the refiner's fire to talk about what God's doing to purify us. What's he having to purify out of us? We'll get to that. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God works all things for the good for those that are called according to his purposes. That all things meaning all the things that come our way as a result of our own sins, as a result of the sins of others, as a result of the fact that we live in a fallen world and people get lung cancer that have never smoked a cigarette. That creation's been subjected to futility and that we are setting in and among such suffering and that God uses these things to purify us. So um, the, the, the Puritans described it like this. The Puritans described Romans 8, 28. You, you, um, you ever heard of like a, what a, like apocryphy or like a pharmacologist? So like a pharmacist would take different ingredients, like two poisonous ingredients, bring them together to form one ingredient and that those two poisonous ingredients are brought together to make a medicine that brings life and vitality. That's the picture of Romans 8.28. That poisonous ingredients that would, that would end you, that would finish you, that would poison you. God brings them together and uses them in such a way to bring life. And then the picture in Malachi 3, which is really what 1 Peter is leaning on heavy. That when the impurities of our life are there... If heat isn't there, they'll never get exposed. So if, if you've ever worked with metal, which I don't pretend that we have any people that work with, with gold in this room, but maybe you do, you could teach me about that. But the picture there is the, 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 the blacksmith would work with the metal and then they, they would put it into the furnace. So if he's trying to purify some silver or trying to purify some gold, that he heats the furnace and he increases the heat and he knows where to get the temperature. And as the heat's increased, the temperature increases and he knows when the metal's been purified, when he sees the haziness come to the top of the liquid metal, the ore, if you will, and then it flashes, it burns off. And when he sees his reflection in the metal, he knows that it's been purified. That's the picture of Malachi 3. That's what God uses here, according to 1 Peter, to bring about a genuine faith, a genuine faith in God's people that can't be touched. It can't be paralleled. It can't be destroyed. Yet we, as a people that wander from a loving God, put our faith in all kinds of things. We put our faith in creation above the creator. We put our faith in our own abilities and God, because he's a loving God, if he was wrathful, wouldn't he just leave us there? And we would be all the dumber. We would never even know it. But because he's a loving God, he uses trials and adversity. He uses suffering to burn away the impurities, to bring about a faith 
in Christ and Christ alone. So my, my dad, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this when I've preached before, but my dad is, um, he's a horticulturist. And so he, he, um, he knows tons about plants. And my, my mom's a landscape architect, so you can imagine growing up what I did. I did all the, the, the dirt work, digging holes while they planted trees, and, and that's, that's what I did growing up. So as a kid, I really despised that work. But as I got older, and I, and I began to learn um, what my dad knew and learn about plants and all these fascinating things about, about botany, um, he would use some of those things in, in the created order, in this case with plants, and he would use those to draw spiritual parallels. At one period in my life, when I was going through quite a bit of um, pain and suffering uh, with, with Crohn's disease, I was diagnosed with Crohn's when I, uh, in 1994 when I was about 14 years old. Um, and that summer, after that, I had been in the hospital pretty much that whole summer, and I was really struggling and wrestling with my faith. At the end of that summer, before school started, um, to salvage the summer, my parents took us on a quick vacation. And we went up to a place called Santa Fe, New Mexico, beautiful place. And we were, we were up there, and my heart, my heart was struggling. Me, me and the Lord were not good. <laughs> I was a follower of Christ at that point in my life, but I was struggling immensely in the depths of my soul. And, and my, my father knew this, and he could, he could see that wrestle in me, although I would not opened up much to him about this. We were sitting in a shopping mall, and, and my mom and my sister were doing what, what women do so well in a mall. Sorry if that's a stereotype, but... <laughs> So the men eventually faded to the food court, and we're sitting, um, we're sitting in the food court on a, on a bench, and, and this was a really, I think it was about a three-story mall, and in the, in the center of, of the, the mall, this food court, they had these big trees um, that, that went straight up to the skylights. And so I'm sitting there, and we're not talking, we're not interacting, and, and I guess I was just wearing it, wearing it on my face that, that I was struggling. And so my dad, he, he asked me, he said, hey, do you know what those trees are? Do you know what kind of tree that is? And I said, I have no idea what kind of tree that is. And he, he said, that's a eucalyptus tree. And so we begin the dialogue about eucalyptus tree. He's telling me the Latin name of the eucalyptus tree, like I even care what the Latin name of the eucalyptus tree is. And then, and then he's telling me all these facts about the eucalyptus tree. And he then asked me a question. He said, if we took that tree right now and we went and planted it outside, just outside of this mall somewhere, what do you think would happen to it? Again, it's a loaded question. Like, I really know what's going to happen to it. It's going to grow, Dad. I'm not real sure. You're going to water it. It's going to grow. He says, no, what, what would happen is I can tell the way that this tree has grown, that it's grown up in a sheltered environment. It's grown up in this sheltered mall. And if you took it outside, because of its age now and because of the harshness of the environment, if you took it outside and you planted it, the first minor windstorm that came, came along, it would buckle under the pressure and it would break in two. And then, he, and then he referenced, he referenced these trees that we had seen in the Gulf of Mexico, down where hurricanes hit them over and over. He said, you remember those trees? I said, yeah. He said, how many storms do you think they've been through? That the faith that our heart longs to put justification in and redemption in God's drawing that faith to Christ and Christ alone. That your heart is prone to wander. And it doesn't just wander. It then places its faith in any and everything but a holy God. And God uses suffering to test this, to reveal this, and to burn it away. That we might be strong the way he intended, not in ourselves, not in a false hope, 
not in creation, in Christ. This is the picture that 1 Peter's talking about, that God uses suffering to expose our hearts and then to refine us. And what he refines and what he's refining, the Bible promises he's going to finish that work. Amen? Amen. So my hope here is that we would quit resisting this work, that we would be a people that don't arch our back to this work, that we would embrace this work, this refining and purifying work that he's doing in us. So then here's how my, my, my mind works. I'm letting you in a bit here. My question is, I'm going to be asking questions. Okay, well, if he's refining us, what specifically in my heart is he refining? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's go there. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. All right, I'm going to start in verse 34, make a couple of comments, and then we're going to read the whole context to understand what Jesus is saying here. Luke 12, 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so don't think treasure like money or gold or, or um, uh, don't, don't think material goods, even though those things can be treasures that bind up and, and, and consume our heart. Think treasure as those things that you put all your trust and hope in. That if I have this around me, I can breathe easy. If I have this in place, I can rest. If I have these things aligned, I'm good to go. So let's read it in its context. Go to verse 22. This is Jesus speaking. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food. And the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens that, that neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as this, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world will seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with the treasure in the, he in the heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." So think of the, here's some big bucket um, items that could be treasures. What do we treasure? Pleasures. We treasure provisions. We treasure status, do we not? If I could just get this recognition, if I could just get this title, if I could just get this prestige, we treasure securities. 
our hearts go to great lengths to put a big wall around our life, to put a big fortress and refuge around our life. So I, what I love about, I mean, you, you've heard that verse if you've been in church, for where your treasures, there your heart will be also. But I love it in its context. In its context, an alternative treasure seeks creation above the creator. And where we seek creation above the creator, anxiety abounds. Because why? Our treasure is always going to be threatened because it's not sovereign. It will rust. How quickly can a job be taken away? You ever showed up in your boss's office and they're doing a reorg? How quickly can status vanish? How quickly can our health leave us? How quickly can a phone call from a family member change your afternoon because of news of a loved one that our treasure quickly abandons us and anxiety abounds where our treasure is threatened? So God uses suffering to reveal where our treasure is Because when our treasure isn't Christ, our hearts are susceptible. Our hearts are vulnerable. All right, two big buckets. And I need to define these because this is what the Lord's purifying in us. And so this is where I want to, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know how you see me right now. I don't know if you see, like, why is he so angry? I'm not trying to be angry. I don't, I don't know that I'm coming across angry, but, but where I'm going now I want us to be serious and diligent about what we're about to get into because there is, I am confident of this, there is not a man or woman or child in this room that what we're about to get into that this skips over. And this has direct implications for your heart with the Lord. And I want us to be sober about this. Two big buckets that reveal where our sin is. Idolatry. First, what is idolatry, you might ask? St. Augustine called idolatry disordered love. Go to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to show you what God's word says specifically about idolatry and how idolatry has implications uh, for so many areas of our life. So while you're turning there, let me give you this example. So when St. Augustine called it a disordered love, what he meant by that was that there's... that. You don't even have to be a believer in Christ to, to see things this way. That, that people in general have different things in their life that they prioritize. And then that prioritizing, there's, there's different affections and love um, notated to those different orders. And so, for instance, for me, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a pastor. So I've got a wife, I've got four kids, um, I've got people at this church and there's, there's different levels of love tied to those. Um, so here's what that would mean. Disordered love would mean I become so enamored and so fixated with my pursuit to be seen in a certain light as a pastor or in my career that I would put that above my love for my wife and my kids. That's messed up. Something's broken there. That's called, I mean, that's human sacrifice if you think about it. Yeah, I'm not murdering my wife or my kids, but the essence of what I'm doing there is I'm going to put them to the side so I can pursue my selfish ambitions. And in so doing, I take that love and I put it at number one. It should have been at number four, number five, and I'm going to take it and I'm going to put it to number one. So what are the implications when our hearts do this? Because I'm not the only one who does this. We all do this. Don't leave me up here alone. Romans 1, 
verse 18. Actually, start in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. You see it? Creation above the creator. So God created all of those things and the heart begins to put those things above the one who created it. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Our hearts prefer in its sin creation above the creator. You do this and I do this. I can wake up at 8 a.m. Jesus is the one who wakes me up and just kind of shakes me. I mean, it could be that type of spiritual morning. Jesus is like, Lee, get up. I'm like, oh, praise God. Just, and by 9 a.m., my heart's like looking to creation to satisfy all of my longings. That's how, that's the propensity of my heart. To have this sweetness with the Lord. And in just an hour or two, to be so enamored and infatuated with creation that I'd give all of my affection and all of my worth to creation. So what are the symptoms of idolatry? So let me, let me read over these and you process for yourself. What are the symptoms of idolatry in our lives? So here's the question. What thing, that could be an object, it could be a relationship, it could be a status, it could be a pursuit, an endeavor. What thing in your life, if it were gone, would nearly take away your desire to live? What thing in your life, if removed, would nearly take away your desire to live. You ever ask yourself that question? I would, I would venture to guess you don't. But you know the reason you don't is because that thing is readily available to you. But the moment someone threatens it or the moment something seems to be coming against it, watch the teeth come out. We go up in arms to guard that thing. What thing in your life, if it were gone, would nearly take away your desire to live. So the essence of sin, I think, is, I think we often think of sin like murder, lying, um, adultery, or, or lust. We think of these behaviors. We think of these actions. But the essence of sin is this. The essence of sin isn't the bad things we do. The essence of sin is turning good things into ultimate things. My desire to pursue a particular career or to pursue a particular type of pastoral pursuit is not a bad thing. But when my heart takes that and elevates it to a place that God would not have me elevate it, it becomes a polluted thing. That's the disordered love that our hearts are capable of, and it's called idolatry. Jesus Christ is the only one who can settle idolatry of our hearts. This demands centrality of our lives and our hearts. Jesus is the only one that can perfectly feel the longing of our heart. You can have all the wealth and riches and security around you you want. It's a bottomless pit because none of them can satisfy on the level of the heart what Jesus Christ can satisfy. Yet, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's the old hymn, is it not? that my heart will look to any and everything outside of the Creator to be satisfied. Second is pride. So what is pride? 
basically pride is self above God. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, just real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Pride in its basic form is self above God. Deuteronomy 8, I'm going to start in verse, verse 11 through 14, then I'm going to jump to 17. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Keep in mind, God's still, he's still reminding them that you're, you're entering the promised land. Here's why I took you into the wilderness. I wanted you to see your hearts the way that I do, but, but don't forget me. So he's, he's reminding them, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. How arrogant are we to see God's provisions in our life? to see how God is working and moving in our life. Things get on an even keel. Things get on a, a bit of a smooth road. We settle into a bit of a rhythm. And then what happens? We kind of kick back, put our arms back, put our legs up. And we don't say this, but we say it. And look what we've done. Look how good things are going. Failing to recognize that God's the one who's done all of these things. So our hearts are prideful in that self-satisfaction, self-sufficiency, and self-reliance. So my oldest son, Luke, we do, we do homeschool, and he's, um, he's actually, he does really good. He's a smart kid. He works hard. Um, but there's, there's a couple areas where he just, he just, he didn't like it. And he, he didn't necessarily struggle in the area um, because I know he can do it. If he does struggle, it's because he doesn't like it and he loses focus when he's doing it. So one of those areas for him right now is phonics. And so phonics, my wife does phonics with him a couple days a week. And, men, it, and I'm never there. Usually the principal has to get a call, um, principal being me. The principal has to get a call around phonics time. And I always know if I'm getting that call, it's because they're probably doing phonics. And so I've been trying to help Luke understand that the reason he doesn't like phonics isn't because he can't do it. He hits phonics and doesn't like it, and then he loses his focus. And then in that defeat, he can't push through and do what he needs to do there to continue to grow in that particular area. And so the other night, we had a big heart-to-heart -heart because he wasn't very good with his mom. And so she, she talked to me about it, and then I had the day to think about it. And I said, Luke, when I get home tonight, we're going to talk about this. So I want you to think about this interaction that you had with your mom and, and just think about how, how that played out, and we're going to talk about it. So we had the whole day to think about it. So we sat down that night. We're about to put him to bed. The other kids are getting situated, and we've got Luke by himself, and we sit there. And I said, Luke, do you remember what I asked you to do? And he said, yeah, we, you, asked us, you asked me to think about what happened there. I said, so what, what, what was the breakdown? So he explains to me the phonics, and, and we start to talk about why he doesn't like it and the difficulty. And so I used that in that moment, and then the Lord gave me grace there. I mean, he really gave me grace because I wanted to tell him to just stink and stop it. Just stop treating your mom this way. She's your teacher. She's your mom. You need to stop it. But, but the Lord gave me grace in that moment to see what was really going on. Where he's good and where he's strong in his school, his mama never has trouble with him. You know why? Because it comes natural to him. It's easy for him. He does well at it. It's not a labor for him. 
but where he struggles, he loses focus, and then he takes it out on his mom. And so in that moment, I said, man, listen, here's, here's how good the Lord is, Luke. He's made you really good in this area, but he wants you to come to him and ask him for help there too. So I'm trying to teach you to stop. Let's get into the phonics. Ask the Lord before your mom gets into it with you. Ask him to give you concentration because I know you can do it, son. Ask him to help you focus so that you can press into it. But here's the lesson, Luke. Just because you're good at it doesn't mean you don't need God. You need him just as much. It's oftentimes in suffering that we realize, I need the Lord. My heart's a wreck. And we wouldn't realize it if things were smooth. We would go along our merry way and think that everything was great when our hearts are ravaged by pride and idolatry. Do you know that this is sin? And I know sin's not popular, is it? We don't want to talk about our garbage, do we? But, but before a holy God, can you stand before him in your arrogance and feel good about yourself? I shudder at this, yet I live in such a way more often than not that I grow numb in my heart and fail to acknowledge and realize that my heart is prone to wander, that in my pride and in my pursuits of creation, I forget that before a holy God, I am sinful. I am sinful. In suffering, God exposes our hearts. Praise God that he does. Because if he didn't expose them, we would never see them. Our hearts exposed reveal where our treasure is. And as our treasure's revealed, and that's different than Christ, by God's grace, he leads us back to the cross where grace can be had for those who would put their faith and their faith alone in Christ. I want to read you real quick just the, the, just the narrative of Job, and you don't have to turn there. Um, Job is one of those stories that in the hard times of my life, I've read Job, and I've thought, I've got something to bring before the Lord here. I've been cheated here. I've been, I've been, I've been thwarted here. But in the times when I've seen a bit more clearly, I read Job and it, it brings me um, a bit of a, a shudder. This is Job chapter one. I'm just gonna read a bit about Job. He, he's a man who was upright. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So here's, here's what you're gonna see with Job. God says some things about Job that I don't really recall him saying about really anyone else in scripture. He alludes to it in the person of David. He, he alludes to it in, 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 in the prophets with like guys like Elijah and Elisha. But Job was a man that God was greatly pleased in. And then th there's this great dialogue that happens between Satan and God. And, and, and if, I, if I were Job as an onlooker with Satan, um, and God, God kind of says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? I'd be like, if I were Job, I'd be like, God, keep your mouth shut, God. Why do you got to say this to, to Satan? But, he, but, but, but Job, um, Job's been asked, but God says, have you considered to Satan? Have you considered my servant Job? And then Satan says, well, of course. Of course you think he's as great as he is. He's got a hedge around him. He's wealthy, he's got everything going for him, he's got it made, of course he's faithful to you, God. And God says, okay, um, you can take all of these things away, don't touch his health, don't touch his life. 
And in a matter of minutes, Job loses everything. He loses his property. His children are murdered. He loses all of his belongings. And listen to what Job says. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job worshiped. His heart was revealed. He loses everything. And his first response is worship. The Lord gives and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But then God continues to reveal. Chapters 3 through 37. Job brings accusation against the Lord. Job judges God. He questions God. And then in chapter 38, and this is what I love about the Lord. And if you're afraid to bring your hurts, your confusions, your struggles to the Lord, I'm pretty sure that God can shoulder it. Because there's times between chapters 3 and 37 as Job is venting, as he's kind of vomiting his frustrations, as he's judging the Lord, that you're just waiting for God to just take one of those lightning bolts and just toss it down on Job and end it. You're, you're flinching for him a couple times as you read through it. But God shoulders it. He doesn't blow Job out of the water. But then here's where God speaks, chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. So out of a tornado. I think I'd be running from a tornado. Y'all use basements for whatever reason y'all use basements for. We use basements for in Texas because tornadoes. That's the only reason you got a basement in Texas. It's because of a tornado. So God's speaking through this tornado. And he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? He speaks and Job is flattened. And it was good for Job. And this goes on and God continues to speak. And then in Job 42, you see Job's pride revealed. In the dialogue from 38 to 41, Job's pride is revealed because Job questions God in matters that he has no business knowing about. And this is what Job says. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel from his knowledge? And what I love about Job's confession here is Job in his confession literally takes things that God said in chapters 38 through 41 and recites them exact, exactly. That confession needs to be specific. Like if the Lord's gonna do any work in our hearts here today, church, brothers and sisters, please listen to me. If the Lord's gonna do a work in your heart, in the areas of your heart with pride and idolatry today, you need to confess it specifically. We could all say we're prideful. We could all say we worship other things. What are they? Where are you self-sufficient? Where are you self-reliant? Job comes before the Lord and specifically confesses the things that God brought against him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? God said that to Job. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Job saying, I was a fool. I should have shut my mouth. I did not know. I had no business speaking. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. 
I will question you and make it known to me. Again, a quotation from something God confronted him directly with. And then verse five, I had heard of you. I thought I knew you is what he's saying. I thought I knew you. I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now I have eyes to see you. I thought I knew you, and now I see you. Here's my fear for us. My fear is that we are so inoculated in our self-sufficiency that we don't even realize how far we've wandered, how disoriented our hearts are. You know when Ananias and Sapphira did what they did? And I thought it was a small thing. I mean, when Ananias and Sapphira, they told a little lie. I would have died a long time ago if I had have done what they did. And God killed them right there. They dropped dead. And it says a great fear went over the church. Yet I feel like in our sin, we tinker with it. We play with it like it's a little, like it's a little pet. It's not a pet. It will destroy you. This pride, this self-sufficiency flies in the face of a holy God. And my fear for us, pleading with you here, my fear for us is that we're so inoculated in our self-sufficiency we ping God when we need something, but our hearts are not submitted to him. And in suffering, we blame him and run from him, or we suppress it and are numb to it. When God in the trial is saying, I'm trying to expose your heart because I long for those affections. This is serious. And so th this is why I kind of paused a few minutes ago because I don't know how it seems how I'm coming off. I'm not angry. I'm burdened for us here because I know how my own heart is. I'll wake up at eight with Jesus and forget him by noon. And if I do that, I'm pretty sure we all struggle with that. My heart is prone to wander. And I know we're all suffering to different degrees, no doubt. Different variables, no doubt. And whether it's your own sin that's led to that suffering, whether someone has wronged you and hurt you and wounded you and sinned against you, or whether you're just sitting under the brokenness of a fallen world, God wants to redeem that suffering by healing you ultimately, by cleansing you by refining in you that he wants our faith to be in Christ and Christ alone. And that where we have misplaced faith, faith, where we have disordered love, through God's mercy, by his grace, through the refining fire, through suffering, he orders our love for him and him alone. Amen? Amen. He draws our faith to Christ and Christ alone. Amen? So what I want us to do is, and we're going to transition now, I'm going to, I'm going to pray over us, and I'm, just if you would bow your head, close your eyes, I'm going, to, I'm going to ask some questions that I want you to wrestle with. Just ask the Lord right now. What? 
might you be trying to reveal, O oh God, in my heart? If you have to even think of past sufferings, past seasons of difficulty and trial, current sufferings, where have you put your faith in creation above the Creator? Maybe the creation's as simple as my hope is in a different marriage, my hope is in a healthy marriage. Those things are great and good, but they can't change your heart. Maybe your hope's in a different career. Maybe your hope is in some different status, something that's escaped you, that if you could just have this, everything would be different. Where have you been self-sufficient? Where have you trusted in your own strength above the strength of the Lord? Where have you put your faith in something other than Christ? Ask the Lord to show you. And then I think we have the opportunity as a people of God to see that as sin. If, if we've treated it as a, as, a, as a soft little puppy to play with, might we never tinker with sin that way? Might we never play with sin that way? If God's exposing it now, let's see it for what it is and confess it for what it is. It's sin before a holy God. God's so serious about it, he murdered his son. He poured his wrath out on Christ. That's how serious he is about these areas of sin in our heart. And so, Father, would you continue to move? Would you continue to reveal? And my fear is, Lord, that we live and coast through life in such a way that we can't even see these things. If the people couldn't see it in the wilderness and God had to tell them why he took them into the wilderness to expose their hearts, how are we going to see it? So, Lord, help us to see these things. And where there is suffering in this room, would you help us to embrace you in the midst of that suffering? Would you help us to open our hearts to you in the midst of that suffering so that we would not resist your revealing, that we would not resist your loving care towards us? So we bless you, Lord, and we thank you for Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.